I saw a poll just now that said something like 67% of Democrats are in favor of impeachment and only like 37 or 38 percent of the population of the country so there's a there's a there's a rift right on the left the demo the democratic base wants to see impeachment and the population at large does not and that's why it's so counterproductive it's they're not going to they're going to make people go more and more on the other side they're pushing people away Remember, at election time, it was almost 50-50. Now what do you got? Now you got a lot of people saying, enough, stop. And they're trying to change people's minds. Yeah, they're going to do that, but not the way they want them to change their minds. The subject of today's show is going to be about uh, changing your mind in terms of political belief. Uh, wow. And to help us, <laughs> to help us with this discussion, we're taking a call, or not a call, but a voice memo from a longtime listener, uh, Tim Visig. Here's Tim's question. Hey, Russ. Hey, Norm. Uh, how you doing? Great. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, I had a question for you guys, a couple comments and a question in the end. Um, talking a lot about how you have your political bent if you're left, right, or centrist. I'm wondering about Mr. Norm, who says that he grew up as a young liberal, and now we know where he ended up. How exactly did that happen? Uh, because many times you guys keep saying that, oh, nobody's ever going to change, nobody's ever going to switch, nobody's, uh, whatever argument you give it doesn't matter, just go as far left or far right as you can, because nobody even exists in the center. Uh, but Norm, you moved... I don't know, did you just grow up, experience? Um, basically, uh, I want to know if there's any hope for your son or if he's just a lost soul or if possibly uh, he can have a transformation like you did. You never know, right? Well, so I'd like to hear about yours, um, how you started to have your first uh, opinions and how those changed and what made those change. And maybe we can uh, go back in time with you and see what the fuck happened to you and why you ended up like you did (laughs) all right uh that's my question hope you guys can answer it all right i'll give it a shot i'll give it a shot let's try that let's let's travel back in time why don't you set the set the stage for us all right before before i do that let me say there's an old saying okay when you're young if you're not liberal you have no heart but as you get older if you're not a conservative you have no brain um, and, and, and I think that's probably, there's a lot of truth in that. Anyway, I grew up in a, in a liberal Jewish household. Um, you know, my parents were, um, grew up through the Depression and, and uh, were very liberal. And uh, my whole family is liberal. There's only a few of us uh, on, the, on the right side, literally and, what, and, like, what are we literally and figuratively. Say it again. What are we talking about? socioeconomically or like where did your family when you were growing up fit in in the socioeconomic uh, okay I think we're I think we were middle class to upper middle class Um, we lived in an apartment my whole life pretty much most of my life as a kid Uh, after my mother died my father uh, ended up buying a house but that was the first time and I was already 16 when that happened 
So most of my life, I grew up in an apartment. You guys rented. You rented. We an rented apartment. an apartment in the city, in New York City, in Brook, in the Bronx. Um, Who lived there? Who lived in your apartment? My apartment was my my mother, my father, my two brothers, um, myself, and our grandmother. My mother's mother lived there. Um, and where? What was her deal? Her deal was she spoke mostly Yiddish, some English. Um, she, uh, you know, she grew up, uh, in Russia, Russia, Poland border, came here, um, when she was probably a, a young woman, um, got married, had my mother and two brothers, three, three children. And then her husband died. My mother's father died when my mother was very young and she had to basically give her kids to her sister to raise and she went up into the mountains the catskills um to work as a cook in uh in a hotel and she did that for years i don't know how many years and uh so that's her story um i only remember her when she was in her 70s and 80s when i was growing up um but you guys lived in the same we lived in the same room my brother and my older brother and i lived in the same room with her and then um, when David, my younger brother, was born, my older brother was already engaged, and he he moved out into the living room on a couch until he got married and moved out. Um, but yeah, she lived she lived in in the same bedroom as me and my brothers. So I mean, it's you, you guys are a middle class uh, Jewish family with liberal or leftist leanings as is probably typical of that community. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and, you know, but I think my first real personal entering into the political realm was Kennedy. And Kennedy was running for president. And I liked things he said, you know, don't ask what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Um, you know, he started the, uh, the Peace Corps. So kids were going all over the world on the Peace Corps and, um, and they were doing good around the world, apparently good things and making, supposedly building bridges to other countries and, and other populations. And uh, then coming home and, you know, having some experience behind them before they went out into the world. So, you know, it was a, it was a mutually beneficial um, thing. And I, I thought that was great that he, he was doing something like that. I thought it was great that when we were blown away, everybody in the United States was blown away when Sputnik went up because there was this Cold War going on where we were threatened by the Soviet Union's nukes and they were threatened by our nukes. And everybody was, you know, kind of scared that any moment something could happen and a nuclear war break out. So um, when they put this first satellite in orbit, we were shocked and stunned and, you know, they could weaponize it. Who know, you know, who knew what they could, they could basically, it would, there was a balance of power that kept everybody at peace. They knew we could survive a first strike if they struck us, but then we would strike back and nobody would, it would end up the world would die because um, both sides could, could wipe out the other. So uh, they both sort of tried everything to avoid war, but this might have broken up the, the balance of power, and we were very, very concerned. And Kennedy came out with that 
you know, incredible speech that by the end of the decade, we're going to put a man on the moon. And he did. You know, it didn't happen while he was alive, but he put a lot of money into the space program. And it was a big space race. Um, and then, uh, you know, then the rest is history. I mean, we were the first people on the moon. And um, so, it, you know, he cut taxes to generate um, growth in the economy. But these were things a lot of the things he was doing. A lot of the things he was doing fit into my my my. I, I appreciated. I thought they were all good thoughts. It turns out it as I learned year? more, as I learned more, this is a conservative view. These things he was doing was cons- were conservative, even though he was a but Democrat. What was it? What, what was it about like your life or your? upbringing or the challenges that you had or you were dealing with that made you particularly excited about those ideas um that's a good question i don't know like why did the space race why did the space race capture your attention so much well i think it captured the whole country's attention it was so exciting you know they picked these astronauts and these guys were like heroes it was you know and and the whole country was cheering for this and it was it just, you, you can't imagine because today, you know, somebody, they go up in a rocket and nobody even knows. In those days, it was like, you know, every every test that was successful was a great thing. You get a great feeling of accomplishment and and nationalism. And, and, you know, when something failed, you felt horrible. I mean, when the first one blew up and, and three people died, it burned, caught on fire and three astronauts died. It was so traumatic you know, for the whole country, and I felt all of that as well. So I became very pro-American. I became very, um, because in that era, it was us, the good guys, against the Soviet Union, the evil empire that was trying to conquer the world and and make, you know, slaves out of people. But what happened to me was I went to college, um, and I, I bounced around. I flunked out of college a couple of times, and it was a tough time. And ended why? up why 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 because I was partying because it was my first time away from home and I was partying and young and stupid. Um, I went to a college that uh, and took a course that I really wasn't interested in, only because I didn't have any guidance. You know, my mother had died and nobody was really telling me or helping me pick a college or think about what I wanted to be. I just tried to pick a college that I could get into, um, but I couldn't stay there because I really didn't care. Um, anyway. So what happened was I became a cop. Let me back let me back up a step. So I've always, I've I've been thinking about this and I think it's noteworthy that your mother passed away when you're very young or like a teenager. Right. And you you're you had problems with your stepmother, which meant that you didn't live in the house with your dad and your stepmother at the end of high school, which is kind of an irregular Thing, yeah, right? yeah. I ran away because I got into big fights with my stepmother, and you know, I just decided this isn't this isn't good. I'm not staying here. So, and I'm, it's I'm fair okay. to say, it's it, is it fair to say that you had behavioral problems, or like if you were living, if you were my age when you were an adolescent, they might say that you had attention deficit disorder, or that you had some sort of you know behavioral issue, or or no. Yeah, I, I definitely, I think I would have been put on Ritalin. I think even as a kid, even with my mother alive when I was a kid in seventh grade, I, um, because my conduct was so bad in school, they kept me, 
They didn't hold me back, but I could have advanced a grade. They have it called it SPs, um, I think special progress, I don't know. But I could test really well, even though I was screwing around in school because I was bored. And um, they told my mother he would have been able to skip eighth grade. He would have gone to seven SP, whatever, and then nine SP, and you, and you cover the whole three years in two. But because of my conduct, and I was so disruptive to the class, they um, they kept me they kept me in the regular class, and so I didn't skip a grade. Um, so yeah, Were when I like say when I say my conduct, when I say my conduct, I, you know, I was I was I was a clown i was a class clown i would kid around i would pull all kinds of crazy stuff i would do funny stuff um i wasn't bad i didn't do anything you know vicious or nasty or hurt anybody or anything like that but i was just i was kind of wild fair and i would imagine that then when you you know you have this trauma where your mother passes away and you end up uh, finishing high school but living at a friend's house or kind of floating around the Bronx and then now this was ready we, we were living in, in Yonkers we moved but by this time my father bought a house we were living in Yonkers and that's and that's when he married um, my stepmother and this when all the trouble began with me and her and all the trouble began with you and her you yeah. got essentially thrown thrown out no, I didn't get thrown out. I ran. I ran away. I left. Ran away. How yeah. old were you then? 15, 16. Okay. So it's fair to say that by the time you were in college, you you'd had... It's not like you were like eating out of the garbage or something, but you'd had a, a rocky road for the last couple years of high school. Yeah. And you got to college, had some issues in college, couldn't stay focused, didn't care what was your major at that time electronics electronics i was taking really... i was taking electronic technology which um you know because i was handy and I, I i like to play around with stuff so i always played around with electrical electronic stuff um but it, it it just wasn't for me so what attracted you to becoming a police officer well, when I was in college, after the first time I flunked out, when I went back, I met um, a girl who ended up becoming my wife. And uh, I basically on the weekends, I'd go to her house with her and her family, and they sort of almost adopted me and, you know, took me in. And, um, and so that was really a comfortable place. And, and her father had been a fireman in New York, and his father had been a policeman. And his whole family was civil service, and he talked me into me going, taking the test to be a cop. Um, I got a job for the phone company, working in their central office um, on the phone systems, based on my, you know, my my short-lived career in, in electronics. But I did get this job, um, and uh, I was there for a, a year or two. And during that time, I took the test to become a cop, and then. I took the, they give you a psychological test and then you get a physical test and then you get a written test and then you have to go through an investigation. And so all of this took time. So about a year and a half, two years into my um, working in the phone company, I got, got called and said, okay, you're gonna come into the police academy next week and I had to make a decision. Um, yeah, okay, but, but before this point, before you ended up at the police department, 
what were your thoughts of the police? Did you have like an adversarial relationship with authority? Because like when I was younger, I guess I always had a sort of like chip on my shoulder about authority. Like I didn't like people telling me what to do. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I didn't like um, the police sort of like profiling me for being a teenager or whatever. You know. I know. I was skeptical I know. of authority. I know you were. I was skeptical. <laughs> I was skeptical of authority. I know. And it and you strike me as the type of person that probably had the same uh, persuasion at that time. I probably did. I probably did. You know, like I said, you're young, and that's that's the general nature of youth. You're somewhat rebelling. You're trying to find out who you are and get yourself set up in life, and um, so it's a strange time period. And yeah, but I, I think you're, you know, it's all part of that rebelling against authority that, you know, takes us into the next phase of life. And so, yeah, I was. I was I was radical and I was anti-establishment to some degree. So, But it, you didn't hesitate. It didn't, like, if I went to you when I was 19 or 20 and said, like, hey, guess what? I've decided I'm going to be a police officer. It probably would have sounded crazy coming out of my mouth, right? Absolutely. Absolutely, because you were so anti-authority. Uh, um, I, I looked you, at it. You I looked at it yeah. like I, I was. I was being advised by my ex-father-in-law, who was pushing me in that direction. I didn't make a decision until almost the last minute, and I weighed it. I weighed it, and I weighed it logically, without thought about the politics of it. It was just I would be better off in the police department because they pay more. Number one. Number two, I can get promoted because I will take tests and I know I will do well. Whereas in the in the phone company, that wasn't going to happen. I was going to stay at the level I was at. And number three, probably the most important one, although when you're 21, 22 years old, you don't really think about it, but it was a factor for me. I don't know why. I could retire in the police department at 42. If I went in at 22, I'd retire at 42. That's incredible. Yeah. I, I, that was, there was no way that was going to happen in the, in the phone company. So those factors, you know, just a logical choice between those two organizations. And at that point, I didn't realize this was a lifetime career and a major commitment. And I didn't know what I was getting into, you know. Um, but I did. So I went, I went and, and I... And you were married and you had a kid at that already. I, I did not have a kid until after I was in the police department. I joined in 65. I think Alona was born in 68 or 69. So, yeah, I didn't have a kid when I joined. Okay, but, but then within a few But years, then it becomes, you know, a, 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 as a cop, it becomes a brotherhood. And it, and it sort of pulls you into that because you're working around the clock. Um, you, you don't have weekends off. You only have certain day, days off rotate um, from week to week. Um, one week you work in midnights and from midnight to eight, the next day, the next week you work in four to twelves. And then a week after that, you work in eight to fours. And so it's rotating every week, which upsets your body clock, something awful. But the other part of that is the only friends you have, the only people you associate with, the only people you spend any time with are other cops because, you know, your regular friends fall away because you you just don't have time for them you, they're off on the weekends and you're off during the week and you work in these crazy weird hours so sooner after a period of a year or so all you all you're really spending time with are cops okay and let's set the stage a little bit for the people who are listening you joined 
the New York City Police Department in the mid '60s. Right, '65. Uh, where were you working? What was it like then? What was going on? Okay. What was the climate. Okay, I was living in Queens at the time in my in-laws' house um, with my wife. We I got assigned to the Bronx to a Bronx precinct and the uh, Park Chester section of the Bronx, which was um, middle-income housing development. Some sections of the precinct were very poor um, Hispanic, Puerto Rican families, um, high crime, very poor, and some sections were very wealthy, um, and there was a lot of middle ground. There was Italian neighborhoods, there was Jewish neighborhoods, there were Irish neighborhoods. There were, you know, it was just a, a big precinct with it with covered a wide range, but so you had everything you possibly needed um, in terms of like where would we eat? Well, you had plenty. You know, there was no no problem figuring out where you're going to eat. Anything you felt like eating, you had access to. Any any areas you you know depending on where they assigned you you could work in a in a quiet section or, or a busy section or anything in between um mm -hmm. so that's that's what happens and then it, you know as as time goes on it sort of becomes us against them when you're dealing with um the bad guys and crime and criminals and making arrests um the public doesn't really appreciate it or didn't and uh you know why i mean i guess what i what if you could just set the stage a little bit in terms of what was happening nationally or what was happening in new york that also i'm sure had a causal relationship with okay with so this was the mid-60s and i did uh, I want to say six months in the police academy. So I went in February. So it's almost 66. The Beatles were coming. Um, you know, the city was going crazy with that. There was a guy bombing uh, Con Edison, which was the electric company, bombing a lot of places, and nobody could find out who he was. Uh, so they had a name Mad Bomber, and that was going on. We had, um, there was the beginnings of the anti-war movement, um, where a lot of the kids were troubled about the Vietnam War, um, as more and more, uh, more and more soldiers were sent over there. Um, you had race relations that were breaking down and across the country, and um, there were. I mean, it's a couple. It's a couple years after like the Civil Rights Act and like yes, Martin Luther yes. King's March on Selma. And all yes, that. and so you had the formation of the Black uh, Panthers. And, um, you know, they were battling with the cops all over the place. Um, you had the women's movement, the anti-war movement, and the black civil rights movement all converging. And the cops were sort of in the middle. The cops were trying to keep, keep order, keep peace, but it became more and more difficult. Um, and, and the cops, I mean, you, you mentioned this earlier, like... At that time, probably more so than now, it was kind of dominated by like white Irish people and Italians, right? Correct. Like, Correct. There wasn't it, what you were you as a Jewish guy were probably a bit of a rarity on a police force, I would assume. I was, oh yeah, I was very rare. I mean, there were some. There were some that you know. I I won't say I was the only, but there were there were probably a couple two three hundred out of twenty thousand. Um, and what about like black people or Puerto Ricans or, there or were, the people who 
there were always black cops, there were always Puerto Rican cops, but, you know, I knew Cuban cops, but in a very big minority. Most, most, and by most, I mean 90% of the department in the mid-60s, 70s, was uh, Irish Catholic with some Italians okay. in there. And, like, in retrospect, right, like, mm-hmm. honestly, can you, do you think that there was racism among police officers? Obviously, I think everyone understands there's an adversarial relationship. You guys are in a tough position. You're seen as the enemy by all of these different people and the communities that you're policing. But, but I'm assuming there's a bit of a back and forth. Yeah, I, I I won't deny that, of course, because it's it's a backlash. Like I said, it becomes it becomes us versus them, meaning the cops versus pretty much everybody else, but mostly the people who you're dealing with in the street. Um, you're not dealing. You're dealing with the with the dregs of humanity. You're dealing with people who are committing crimes, having family fights, you know, doing assaults, robbing stuff, um, you know, whatever. And also, to a large degree, aided cases, we used to call them. I don't know what they call them now. When somebody got hurt and they called the cops and you had to help them and get them to the hospital or whatever. But the more aggressive part was dealing with crime and, and the like. And so that, the mentality starts um, us against them. And it starts in the academy when they teach you that. You know, you can never lose a fight again because you've got a gun on your hip. You get into a fight with one, two, three people, and you're going to. Um, you can't lose, because if you lose, they'll able to take your gun and kill you. So it's a fight to the death, every fight you're in, um, which is crazy, but that's the way it was. Um, and you're how out did in the that street. sound to you the You're time. out in the street, you're like, alone. You're out in the street, you're alone, like and you're dealing with fun. Did that sound exciting, like it was a challenge that you were excited to like meet? Like what? Type, it, was ex- it was exciting, a lot of, and it was scary. You have to be a certain type of people. You have to be a certain type of person to like take that on, right? No, I don't think so. I think I grew into it. And I, like I said, I mean, I, I this was the last thing I think my parents wanted for me. They had no no idea that that was going to happen. And I nor did I. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, I think you grow into it. I think the department from the police academy, six months in the police academy, you're doing training with people teaching you all kinds of martial arts, all kinds of street fighting, how to deal with your nightstick, how to deal with your gun, you're taking, you know, firearms training. And all of this stuff is, as they're doing it, there's also some emotional, you know, seed planting, if you will, that goes on. And that's part of it. Um, You're going to be called to bar fights and there's going to be a six foot two drunk in there and you're going to have to, you know, do something with him, get him out or lock him up or something because he's disrupting this, the, the premises. And, and that happens, you know, and you, you just you get called to these situations where you're put up against crazy odds. You know, you're walking down the street and there's three or four gangbangers standing there and, you know, and the neighboring people have complained that they're causing trouble, so you try and move them. And if you don't look like the kind of guy who can handle himself or if you're the kind of guy who's going to be pussyfooting with them, they're going to take advantage of you, and you're, you're not going to have any control over the situation, and that's what you have to do. You have to have control. So you've got to pick on the biggest and baddest-looking guy and take him on. So this whole context of, like, you've become a police officer, um, you're at a certain point supporting a family. At, at the same time, politically or, like, 
socially in New York City, for a lot of people, especially on the left, you're an enemy, right? You're like Correct. a white-skinned as, police officer as, with as a time, mustache. As time goes on and we move into the 70s, yes, we are the enemy. We are the the, and, the scum of the earth, yes. So, pigs. So we were pigs. You, we were pigs. Uh, that people would spit at us. People would throw shit at us. Yeah, that's what that was us. Blue, the Blue Army. You know, for a time I lived upstate New York, and a lot of people did. We came in from upstate, which was north of the city, and they, for a long time they called us the hired guns from the north, like in the cowboy movies. You know, um, but you know that's in essence what we were. We we would come in and try and preserve order in a city that had gone chaotic because I mean, there's by, like by that, now there's that movie there's that movie based on the precinct that's in the bronx yeah I don't know fort apache your, fort apache the bronx fort i, worked, I, I mean I that's there. kind of like that's kind of the mentality you work there i worked there that's the kind of mentality and that's kind of the mentality you're talking about right it's like correct you are a fort you are a fortified uh, entity behind enemy lines and you have to defend your ground or something like that. That's exactly what it was. I mean, when I was working in Harlem, you couldn't go eat anywhere in the precinct. You know, you you, you get a meal out, but you couldn't eat in the precinct because they'd poison you. They hated us. So you'd have to either go outside the precinct or some, you know, one of the two guys would cook in the station house. Um, it, it was a crazy situation. We'd throw bricks and bottles off the roof at you. I mean, they re because don't forget now in the 70s, it's the culmination of chaos. You've got the Black Liberation Army now, the Black Panthers. Black Liberation Army was going around assassinating cops, killing cops, um, calling you to a particular location and then just as you as you pulled up, just shooting you. Um, so they did that. Um, there was the regular crime going on, but that was nothing compared to the uh, the, the race riots and the black hatred towards cops, black Muslims. Um, and in addition to that, you had the SDS, the Students for Democratic Society that were anti-war, that were, they, you know, at that point they took over Colombia. Um, and we had, to, we had to go there and as an army and basically extricate them from the dean's office. I mean, it was horrible. You know, and they had pissed and shit all over the place on the dean's office. But cops got hurt, you know, cop got Somebody jumped out of a second-story window and landed on a cop's back. He almost died. He he's par was paralyzed. I mean, um, the SDS was planting bombs um, in the city to blow up places, and cops would have to come and disarm them, and some cops got blown up. Uh, there was also, you know, Puerto Rican Liberation Army, and it, it was just, in, in the 70s, the city of New York was... Um, a place to be reckoned with. It was like Dodge, Dodge City, wild, wild west, um, not safe. There were streets we wouldn't go down. Streets I would not walk down at night with a gun in my hand. I, w I wouldn't, because I knew I wouldn't make it to the other side. It's crazy as it was. So I, I, obviously this, this um, I've like asked you these questions for a reason, right? Do you think that it's fair to say that this, that those experiences had a big impact on your political, uh, on your political ideology, or was it something that was sort of brewing from before? How can you track your your change? As was Tim's question. Yeah, um, from kind of admiring Kennedy and sort of ge generally 
without thinking too much about it, maybe considering yourself a Democrat to then becoming a conservative? Well, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it reinforced my feelings. Um, it reinforced working, working as a cop in those days in Harlem, because after I got promoted to sergeant, I was assigned to Harlem. Um, and that was everything that happened reinforced my feelings about conservative views and strong against, you know, anti-crime. We have to stop crime. We have to you know, deal with it. Are there like emblematic experiences that you could that you could describe that sort of fortified your conservatism at that time? Yeah, I mean, the population of the city was moving out. The Bronx was being burned uh, by landlords. We had rent control in the city. This was another, another point of conservative versus liberal. So New York had uh, rent control laws, which meant landlords couldn't raise the rent more than a half. Yeah, a, they still, they, yeah, they still, they still have rent control. Yeah, which is yeah. stupid. So what happened was the landlords weren't making any money on the, you know, they couldn't raise the rent, but everything else was going up, the cost of oil to heat the places, the cost of electricity, everything was going up that the landlord had to pay for, repairs and everything. And the buildings were getting older. And so a lot of landlords walked away. They said, oh, I'm not gonna be here. So this is, I'm losing money every year. It's crazy. So buildings got burnt down. Um, right, because they would burn, sometimes- Well, a lot of times that happened. The they called it Jewish lightning. Okay, um, the building would burn down, the landlord would collect the insurance and get the hell out, move to Florida, whatever. Um, and what was it about conservatism that seemed appealing in that context? You know, this whole thing about rent control, it's, it's, it's totally nonproductive. Um, you know, you have, we're a free market society, right? We're, we're a capitalistic country. But if you, if you put limits, if you put that kind of control over it, uh, this is what happens. This is what happens. And so I became very conservative and very staunch conservative. I voted for Goldwater. And what about, I voted for Goldwater. What about the relationship between the police and and let's say black people or or hispanic people at that time because i think that now there's like a lot more consciousness about police brutality or about racial profiling or all this sort of thing there's a lot what more consciousness like? about everything it's not just race it's uh it's you know gay pride and all of that there's a lot more consciousness about all of that that didn't exist back then Back then, right, but specifically, yeah, the, specifically, the black, like, black community was, uh, they were they were fighting with us. They were trying to kill us. Okay, there was, and I'm not saying every black person. A lot of black people, most of the black people, were law-abiding, innocent people who were caught in the middle. Um, they wanted us there. They wanted the crime to stop. They didn't want all these drug dealers to be taken over their lobbies of their buildings and and the stoops and and harassing their kids and everything. They didn't want that. Yeah, but. Do you, looking back on that time, where there's no cell phone footage, there's no, not necessarily like a mechanism to combat racism in a police department or what, what now we come to understand as police brutality. Do you, what, what was it like at that time? Police brutality, be, police brutality existed to the extent that it, my mentality was, if you treated me decent, I'm gonna treat you decent. I don't care if you're green, yellow, black, or white. I don't care. If you treat me okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do anything to cause you any grief. 
if you treat me like shit, I'm going to come down on you like you never saw. So that's right. police brutality. That's the, that's the reason for it. If you treat me like shit, when I get you alone, I'm going to kick your ass. Right. And so, you, so, I mean, obviously, like, not to beat, beat, a, beat a dead horse, uh, pardon the pun, or the, you know, redundancy of adjective, but, like, roughing somebody up or beating somebody up or, like, dangling them off the side of a building, let's say, like, those were things that at that time were sort of more accepted or common practice that today would be like people would be horrified if like something like that was people, made. No. People would be horrified if they were aware of it even back then. Um, right. I think I think the advent, like you say, of cell phones and cameras and um, and people having videos everywhere. Um, you know, policing is a dirty job. It's a dirty, thankless job. Um, you know, you don't want the bum laying on the corner on in front of your house. Um, but what? But you. So what do you do? You call the police, and, and it's our problem. And what do we do with that person? You know, you try and pick them up and move them somewhere else. Um, you can't. You know, the hospitals won't take them anymore. So, what? What do you do? Um, and we're put in that situation a lot. So, people don't want to know. They don't want to see it. They just want it to be better, okay? They don't want crime, but when cops deal with criminals, it's it's an aggressive situation. It's a it's it's a battle sometimes. Sometimes they come along and they put their hands out and you handcuff them. It's no problem. Sometimes they're going to run. They're going to resist. They're going to fight you. You know, they're going to try and get away. They're going to try and get rid of the evidence, whatever it is. Um, and you have to be aggressive. You have to be somewhat, sometimes abusive. Now, you're not supposed to use more uh, force than is necessary, but, you know, that's a very vague term, isn't it? What's necessary? Well, I remember, I remember one time on you told me, one time you told me uh, when I was like a teenager, like, don't ever make a police officer run because cops don't like to run. And when they catch you, they'll beat the shit, they'll beat the shit out of you. Yeah, that's true. Now, that's not every right. cop. That's not every... I, I'm not casting aspersions on every cop. And, and I'm talking 30 years ago, but, um, you know, it's a different world today. It's a different world today. So, uh, but, but it's the same, the same issues. It's the same problems. Uh, how it's being dealt with, I don't know. But, right, but I guess the, to answer Tim's question, or at least to go back to it, yeah, it seems like... Uh, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Like this chapter of your life, or these these experiences of being a white Jewish police officer in New York in the '60s and '70s, had a big impact on your political ideology. Is that fair to say? Um, yeah, I would think so. I think so. What else? What are the other things that you think have made you who you are today? I think all of those things that were happening at the same time. Um, the, the 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 race riots, the Black Liberation Army killing cops, the Black Panthers, you know, disrupting cops, um, the Black Muslims getting involved in shootings with cops, um, all of those things um, pushed me to a very very strong um, law and order guy. Okay, I, 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 you know, that's just, and I think that's a very conservative view. I think liberals. 
I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of a liberal situation. So I, I told you I worked in Parkchester before I became a sergeant. I worked in the Bronx in Parkchester. So six and eight story buildings, some of them are butting each other. So there was a rash of burglaries. Somebody would go up to the eighth floor, the sixth floor, go onto the roof, walk across the roof and break in through a window on the adjoining eight story building uh, into a window and burglarize it. And so this happened. We got a call one day, burglary in progress. So I dropped my partner at the eight-story building, and I went around to the six-story building, and I ran up the stairs to the sixth floor. And as I'm on the fifth floor, I'm hearing somebody running down. So I grab him. I, I, I handcuff him. I take him up to the roof, and I walk him right across the roof to that broken window. My partner opens the window. I come in with this guy, and there's a couple there. It's their apartment. They just came home and caught this guy, and he jumped out. He ran out the window and was trying to get away. The first words out of her mouth were, why are you doing this? Why do you do this? Why did you break in here? And I looked at her, and I said, lady, he's poor. He doesn't have anything, and he wants what you have. That's why he did it. What, are you going to try and reason with him? It's like, you know, that's a liberal. The lady who's asking him why he did it. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't understand. Because he's a crook, because he's a thief, because he doesn't have and you do. And he's going to take what you have. That's that's all there is to it. There's no there's no deep-rooted thought process. He, he's going to take whatever he can get. He doesn't care he's hurting you. He's only thinking about... Either he's got a drug habit that he's going to go sell whatever he steals from you and, and buy drugs or whatever, but... You know, that's what it's about. Let me ask you this. What about the work you did in the police union? Because, I mean, police unions are super interesting politically because almost all unions kind of have a, um, you know, anti-cap, not, maybe not anti-capitalist, but definitely putting checks and balances on management, which is a sort of lefty endeavor usually. Yeah, but police I unions agree. seem to not. Uh, police uh, unions seem to not be uh, leftist, obviously. Well, so well, here's what happened in 1968 or 69. Um, there was a strike. Well, the, the the city gave a raise to our sergeants, and then we were supposed to be tied to our sergeants uh, economically. In other words, for every dollar they earned, every three dollars, every three point nine dollars they earned, we would earn three. This broke that, okay, and that was a historical thing. So we took it to arbitration and lost, and then it went to the Court of Appeals, and we lost, and it went up to the Supreme Court in New York, and we lost. And so all the cops were pissed. So we started a strike. It was, the union didn't do it, it was the cops in the street. So um, we just started a strike. And um, we were on strike for twelve. What did that entail? You just we you, said you we said we're not going to we're not going to work um, starting at six o'clock tonight. Everybody uh-huh. in the city is going to stop working. So um, the the sergeant came and called the roll call, and we all stood there. And he said, "Okay, take your post." And we all looked at him and said, "No." <laughs> he said, "What do you mean no?" And we said, "No, we're not going to work. I'm not going out there." And so. He said, well, I'm going to have to call the captain. Well, go ahead, call the captain. So the captain came in. The captain said, okay, take your post. We all said the same thing. So he called the deputy inspector, and they called the borough commander. And this went higher and higher. And they finally came in and said, 
you know, there's people out there that need you and somebody's going to die. It's going to be on your shoulder. And they try to threaten us that, you know, terrible things are going to happen to people and it's going to be our fault. Um, but we stood strong and we didn't do it. Um, and, uh, you know, that was, the, that was the strike. It was called a job action because it wasn't called by the union. It was called by the rank and file. Um, you know, and I was pretty instrumental in, in starting that. I was in a very radical precinct, in the 43rd precinct in the Bronx. And, w and we, uh, we spread the word throughout the city that this was going to happen and everybody went along with it. Do you, in terms of like now current, your current political ideology, do you sympathize with like a labor union when you see, uh, let's say like the teachers that have been going on strike last year? Uh, do you have any sort of like solidarity with them or do you see it as a different fight or different struggle? Uh, it's an interesting thing. I, I, some, it depends. It depends on what it's about. I mean, I, um, you know, I, I think teachers are underpaid. I think cops and firemen are underpaid. But um, I, 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 I sort of differ from the conservatives in this regard. I, I sort of um, line myself up with the unions. How much of your political ideology, especially like at that time, would you chalk up to like the camaraderie of the station house or being around other police officers or your sort of buddies that you go out and drink beer with after you get off work? Like how much of it do you think is exposure, your exposure to... Well, like I said, we were, I, we, the only people we did hang out with were other cops. So, of course, the exposure was... Um, the only exposure I had was to other cops. And the cops generally... Um, at least back then, were very conservative, you know. I'd say it's probably still. The case. It may still be the case. Yeah, I mean, law and order, strong law and order. Um, you know, small central government. Um, what about culture war issues? So, like, I think police, the big one that is, you know, now it's more seen as like police brutality, but I think it's always had like a racial tinge. Like how, how much of that? makes up your political ideology or or the political ideology of a lot of police officers or the sort of banter you would hear at the station house? Um, how much of my political ideology is based on racism? Is that what you're asking me? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what you're asking no, me. <laughs> no, I'm not asking you how much of it is based on racism, but I think that, like, do you... Do you see race issues as like a politically exciting one for you? Um, no, I don't. Does it? I, don't, does it, I does no it longer look at it that. I no longer look did at it. Did the civil that rights way. movement really get your goat? Like, was that something that was motivating you to go vote against liberals? Let's say. No, what I cared about was the radicalization of it, um, and that happened. You know, and I was in the midst of that, um, and. But like, what did it you think? It seems to be happening. Like it seems to be happening again with you know, Black Lives Matter. I mean, it seems to be now. Of course, I don't think it's as bad as it was back then, where they were killing cops. And although there have been a lot of that, um, but I, I think the Black Lives Matter um, concerns me that whole thing because I don't want to see that that happen again. That was a but, very but divisive I, time. For, what did you think of the of Martin Luther King? Let's say. Um, I really, uh, I really didn't know much about Martin Luther King until after he was he was shot. 
Um, yeah. And, um, you know, and, and of course, I was negatively influenced by that because there were riots and I had to deal with them. And uh, 25th Street was on fire and crazy. And I was out there with 10 other guys and nobody else. Uh, I remember that, being scared to death. But at that moment, are the cops saying, like, God damn this Martin Luther King? Or are they saying, like, God damn the guy who shot Martin Luther King? Or are they saying, God damn these people who are... God damn, these, God damn these people who are raising hell. Yeah. Stokely Carmichael stirred them all up, gave a speech, and they came... They After that speech ended, they came around the corner throwing rocks and breaking every window on the street. And you know, anybody in the way was getting knocked over. Uh, yeah. It was I mean, insane. Do you think, though, like in your mind, logically, do you think that if you were a black person or, let's say, I don't know, a Puerto Rican person at the time, you would feel differently about these issues? Or if you weren't a police officer, if you would feel differently about these issues? I don't know, because there were black people who um, really respected the law. We had black cops in my precinct who were buddies. I mean, no, I... I, I I'm not saying, like, I'm not saying, like, whether or not they hate the police. I'm saying like the justification or the need for the civil rights movement. The, like, I, like I said, I don't have a problem with the civil rights movement. What I what I dislike. I'm not. About I'm not asking if you have a problem with the civil rights movement. I, I'm saying like, it, do ahead. you see it as a good th- like, like every kid? I think probably from the 1970s or 80s forward, all is taught that like Martin Luther King is one of the greatest Americans who ever lived because. He was the catalyst for overcoming or, or beginning the movement to overcome racial injustice. Yeah, and how did he do that? He did that peacefully. You know, he did that peacefully. He turned the other cheek and all of that. Um, but this is a, what I'm saying is... is I like, respect is that. I respect that? that. I don't respect when it got radicalized and, and they got violent. I, I don't respect that at all. So do, do you see that uh, as... A motivating factor for your political leanings no no my political leanings are more are, are less race related than they are um, size of government um, letting letting businesses flourish because that's small businesses what what moves this country um, you know lower taxes and and smaller government let the government do what it's supposed to do which is defend us and protect us and keep us safe um but not it gets involved in everything else under the sun tell tell our audience who doesn't know like so you retired from the police department went to law school well before i retired i went to law i went to law school at night while i was still working in in the police department and then i retired and moved out to San Diego and became a lawyer. Took the bar out here and became a lawyer. Um, and I happen to be doing plaintiff's work, which, you know, civil medical malpractice and, and elder abuse stuff, which is um, usually very liberal lawyers do that. Okay. Why? Why is that? I don't know. It just, it just is because you're sort of you're taking on the establishment. Um, as a, you take on insurance companies, essentially, right? Yes, I take on insurance companies. And it's like criminal law I wouldn't do, but most criminal defense lawyers are liberal because they're taking on the establishment, yeah. Why wouldn't you do criminal law? 
because I'm, I'm, I'm too, you know, my views are too embedded in law and order and I, as a cop, and I, I just couldn't see myself doing the other side. It's, yeah. too mu it's too much of who I am, you know? Yeah. So I represent injured people who, you know, usually don't have the money, and I have to work on a contingency, but um, I enjoy it. I enjoy being in court. I enjoy putting together lawsuits and cases and... That's why, why, that's, like that's that? why I went to law school. Because as a cop, I, was, I, I had a narcotics unit in Harlem after a while. And um, we did a whole lot of trials. And I loved it. Most cops are scared to death of the courtroom and lawyers. Um, I loved it. I loved the matching wits with some of the brightest lawyers in the city. And they all used to say to me, what are you doing? Why are you wasting your time? You're smart. Go to law school. And eventually I did. Um, and I just loved the courtroom. I don't know what that has to do with conservatism, but it's just part of me. So do you think we've kind of outlined the, the big uh, contributing factors to what changed you or at least informed your political ideology? I do. I think so. I think Kennedy um, was a big part of it, even though he was a Democrat. Um, today he would be a conservative. I mean, today his views would be considered conservative. Um, compared to the way liberalism is now. Um, and then I think working as a cop reinforced everything. Right. So, in conclusion, to answer Tim's uh, final question, which is, like, is it possible to change, do, is, it, is it possible to change people's minds or to change people's political ideologies? What do you think? I don't, do I don't think in a conversation or, um, you know, having a discussion with people, you're going to change them. Um, the basic, the basic ideals. You may, you may be able to get them thinking about um, some of it a little more. Um, a lot of people are just born in a in a in a liberal family, or just grow up as a liberal, or go to school and get indoctrinated with liberalism. I don't know, um, but yes, I think over time people can change. I mean, I did. 